So if you are joining us again for the first time, we just launched our church last week. So this is technically week two of what Passion Church is becoming and unfolding to be. So we are in week two of this teaching series called Spiritual Formation and Practicing the Way. My hope is for those that uh, are possibly here and may be considering us to be your future church family, this entire series will give you a window into who we are and how we're going to practice the way of Jesus together. And so we're unpacking our first cultural value, which is Christ is our core. We did part one last week. You can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We are not on Google Play, so I'm sorry to the Android users. We're going to figure that out. Um, But you can get caught up uh, from last week. And so today's teaching text is this kind of beautiful ode to Christ from the Apostle Paul. Uh, It is this like poetic hymn that captures the deity and sovereignty of Jesus, but also captures what that means to worship the Lord, but also do that in community. And so as we see this teaching text is in in this letter uh, to uh, this ancient city called Philippi, which today would be um, like modern day, northern, eastern part of Greece. And sometimes when we look at these letters, we think these churches are massive, but in actuality, uh, this church in Philippi would have probably be a small house church, maybe like between 20 to 30 believers together. So it's quite intimate. And so Paul, he was the one who founded this church. And so he's writing this letter, uh, kind of reminding these new believers who Jesus is. A lot of the letters that we see uh, in the New Testament are often, more often than not, reminding these believers who Jesus is because they kept forgetting uh, who Jesus was, the Son of God. And so this gospel uh, that uh, we see kind of in uh, Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is the story that these believers came to faith in. Uh, And in this letter, it's kind of like the beating heart of the entire letter is often referred to by theologians. So let's get into it. Uh, Verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Fun fact about scripture. Whenever we see the word therefore, we need to look at what was previously said because the previous thought is linked to whatever's after the therefore. So when we look at the end of chapter 1, we see that Paul the Apostle is like encouraging these believers to be together, to be together, to be a community, to do life together. And so as Paul is unpacking all that we have heard Elise read this morning, it has this element of communal practice. And so as Paul is listing here what are things that every believer should experience, they are meant to be experienced in relationship with one another. And so the NLT, the New Living Translation, would um, rephrase these words into rhetorical questions, which I think is a little bit helpful. The first question, is there any encouragement from belonging in Christ in your community? Is there any comfort from his love? Are you experiencing his love in community? Are you experiencing fellowship together in the Spirit? As a community, are your hearts tender and full of compassion? This is what Paul is asking of these believers. Paul is pointing out the characteristics of what it means to be in a Christ-centered community. And I think often, as Christians, if we call ourselves 
followers of Jesus, but there is no significant shift in how we live our lives, can we actually call ourselves followers of Jesus? We see in these parables, right, it's like looking in the mirror and forgetting who we are. I know that uh, my man Kanye West has been at the center of a lot of controversy for the last couple of years, but at least he went from dropping songs saying, I love Kanye to Jesus is Lord. I think it's a little bit more evidential of what God was doing. That could be controversial in this room or whatever. That not being the point, don't linger on it too long. But all I'm saying is the believers in Philippi were still growing in their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, but moreover, what it means to follow Jesus in community. It needs to be lived out. And so what Paul is affirming here is when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, number one, you are no longer alone. God's presence is is inviting you into community. As we see in the scriptures, we are created in the image of God, that being a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're created in the image of relationship. The second thing, you always be comforted. God's presence is love. Yes, there are seasons for grieving and hurt, but God's presence is one that we can find soulless and we can lament in and be comforted from our grief. Question three, we share life with the Spirit of God. This is what fellowship in Christ means. Uh, The church should be a place where we can just step in and be brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, that's what friendship is. Friendship is having common interests whether that be in food, whether it be coffee, fashion, but ultimately as followers of Jesus, that is our identity as sons and daughters. That is the, the biggest thing we could have in common as friends and obviously as brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, we experience God's mercy and grace. We have been forgiven. So this is what Paul is essentially trying to break down for these new believers in Philippi in this Roman colony in the first century. He's reminding the believers that all of these things you should be experiencing in your church community. And so as we move into verse 2, Paul further unpacks what this means. Again, in relationship with one another, verse 2. Then make my joy complete, that being Paul, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And so we see here that Paul is kind of sliding in this personal request to these believers. And he's able to do that because he actually has a unique and significant relationship with these believers. He was the one who actually founded this church. And so in our context, um, again, I like to talk about our launch team as we planted this church together, but uniquely, I, I understand that I am the planter in this church. And so let's say we planted this church and I leave and piece the scene and go to Japan and I come back after a year. I'm actually not even come back. I just sent a letter. I sent an email. Um, This is what I would be saying. Like, hey, remember me? Like, I was part of the launch team. Like, this is the unique relationship that Paul has with this church. So obviously, if Paul slides this request, it carries some weight. It carries some significance. And so what is Paul essentially asking of these believers, of these believers in Philippi? What's he asking them? He's essentially saying, can you please just get along with each other, please? Like, that is what he's saying. Because these believers have forgotten the importance of unity in the body of Christ. Sometimes, maybe often, in church culture, 
we brand uh, church community as this like amazing and awesome thing. Um, but I think sometimes we set people up with maybe false expectations. The reality is when you get broken people together, there's going to be tough times and you're going to disagree. The hope is when Christ is the center, there's grace and mercy and understanding. Like last week, as we were like, a lot of this, like these kind of banners came in like the day before last week. And so we didn't really know how we were going to set things up. And so Danny and I, we had, we had like this, we didn't fight, but we had a very strong, passionate conversation in the back of how we wanted these two uh, banners to be. And we were, you know, volume maybe turned up maybe a couple notches. But at the end of the day, I knew that at the end, at the end of the day, we're fine because I love him. We have the best interest for our church together. And so, yes, there's going to be hard times, um, but uh, it's hopefully this understanding, knowing that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what's going on in this new church, this little house church of about 20 to 30 people, these believers in Philippi, northeastern Greece today, what is going on that they are not getting along? Let's find out, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So here, uh, Paul uses the Greek word eretheia, eretheia, which means selfish ambition. And what this word actually uh, kind of uh, denotes is this idea of rivalry. Eretheia means rivalry in the Greek. Why would these Christians be getting caught up in rivalry amongst one another? We have to remember that in this first century context, the Roman Empire, like, there was a specific culture to living in Rome. Uh, And this this culture was very centered in honor. This idea of honor, of status, uh, seeking honor and glory for oneself. Arguably, that would have been one of the highest, if not highest, value. Seeking honor for oneself. And so in this first century context in the Roman culture, how you are seen, how you are perceived, your status, platform, value, accolades, that meant everything. How you were seen, how you were perceived by others. And so you could say with this huge emphasis on status, it created this subculture in the church. And I love subcultures. Uh, I... I don't have many interests. I don't play sports. Uh, but if I get into something, I go hard. So, like, I love, I love talking about anime with, like, a fellow weeb, okay? I love talking about coffee with uh, me and Joe talking about how can we extract the specific notes from the single-origin Ethiopian coffee. Or maybe it's, like, I'm looking forward to watching the next UFC fight, 280, with people that are, like, in, that know martial arts. There's something about subcultures that's really powerful. But this subculture that was developing in the early church of competition and rivalry has no place in God's kingdom. And this is what's happening. And this is why as Paul hears word, he's like, this needs to be squashed ASAP. And so there's nothing wrong with ambition. You know, sometimes that carries 
maybe a sense of negativity. There's nothing wrong with ambition. You can have ambition to be the best spouse. You can have ambition to be the best employee. You can have the best ambition to do whatever, to be the best friend, to be uh, the best mechanic. Uh, You can do whatever. You can have ambition. That's fine. But there is a distinction between selfless ambition and selfish ambition. And the thing about this Roman culture and what subculture was beginning to form in the church, there was this culture around selfish ambition. And so Paul also uses this word, vain conceit. Vain conceit. We can understand this as being excessively proud or concerned about one's own appearance, qualities, achievements. Just really caring about yourself. In the Greek, uh, for the word vain conceit, uh, it's the word kenodoxia. The word kenodoxia, which can be understood as self-glorification, empty of substance. That's heavy. Self-glorification, empty of substance. Roman culture was all about narcissism, pride, and platform. It was essentially worship of self. I think today that that worship of self might be one of the most popular religions today in the 21st century. And so although Roman citizens were, were focused and enamored with this idea of seeking honor and glory, these new believers still had this as, as kind of like the background to who they were. And this competitive subculture of rivalry and seeking honor for oneself was beginning to tear the church apart. So how are the Philippian believers supposed to follow Jesus in such a self-centric culture? What are they supposed to do about that? How are they supposed to be formed in the image of Christ when all they know is, is status, platform, and image? Well, Paul tells the believers that they're to counter this culture by being guided in humility being guided in humility. Well, what is humility? I can tell you what humility is not. Humility is not just putting yourself down. That is not what humility. Before I was, um, uh, I used to be a youth pastor and loved it and it was awesome. But I got caught up in, again, this subculture at the time that was very prevalent in youth ministry a few years ago. And so I got into the youth preaching circuit. So, you know, I'm preaching at different youth ministries. And uh, what I would see other youth pastors do is take pictures of themselves and then post it on Instagram and, you know, some type of humble caption. So I'm like, okay, that's what youth pastors do. And so then I would preach. And then, you know, literally I brought so many friends along. It's really embarrassing. But I remember, like, I was speaking at 10th. Uh, in their youth ministry a few years ago, and I brought Atto, and, you know, I got my biker leather jacket on because I got to look good in this picture, and so I bring, bring Atto, I hand him my phone, like, hey, bro, is it cool if you, like, take a picture of me? Uh, he's, like, being very kind of, of course, and then, you know, I get the photo, and I post it on Instagram, like, and, and like, you know, it usually starts with, I just had the privilege, <laughs> right? Like, there, that, I just had the privilege of, like, I'm not posting this photo for the glory of God. That is for myself. That is for me, myself, and I, my privilege. Oh, my gosh. But it's scary to think that, you know, a lot of what we see in what was the Roman culture parallels a lot of what 
the Western, just Western world is all about, but we see that kind of sneak into church culture as well. So what is humility? What's true humility? Humility is not even thinking about yourself at all. That is what true humility is. True humility is getting the attention off yourself. It's not even thinking about yourself and putting yourself down. That can become false humility. Humility is not even thinking about yourself. When we, as followers of Jesus, can get the attention off ourselves, all of a sudden it becomes so much easier to actually think about others, right? In a city and culture, in that first century context where status and platform was elevated to the highest of values, and that's very evident today, it makes sense why Paul is trying to turn this upside down. And maybe that's why it's called the upside down kingdom, I don't know, but he's telling them, you actually need to treat others superior than yourselves, That would have been so ground-shaking for these believers to hear because they would have, again, grew up up in a culture through their adolescence, early adulthood, and as they are citizens in the Roman Empire, it was all about themselves. And Paul is saying, it is no longer about you. It is about others. Let's read verse 5 and onward. In your relationships with one another, save sorry, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the heartbeat of the entire letter. It is this beautiful ode to Christ, this beautiful hymn of Christology, exalting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so what Paul is trying to do here, he's reminding these new believers of why they're Christians in the first place. Verse 5, which was in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Verse 5 connects the story of Christ, which is verses 6 to 11, to the story of the community which is verses one to four. Again, so much of Paul's letters is just reminding these believers that Jesus is the center, it is everything. There is power when we say that Sunday school answer is always Jesus. That is what Paul is saying in every letter. The answer is Jesus, guys. Come on, stop forgetting. This is what he's trying to communicate to this young group of believers. This hymn, this ode to Christ, isn't simply for Uh, the exaltation of Jesus, it's also for the purpose of worshiping Jesus in community. This ode to Christ is a model for Christians to both behold Christ and embody Christ as a community. Again, it's one thing to call yourself a follower of Jesus and a complete other thing to live as 
a follower of Jesus. That's why we've named this teaching series the way it is to even just fill our language with really good words, spiritual formation and practicing the way. It is one thing to understand. It is one other thing to live it out. The Christian life is marked by selfless love, exemplified by the Son of God. Jesus is our Messiah, our King, but he is also our example. Having Christ as our core, that being our our first cultural value as a church, Christ is our core, means to love God, love others, and love the world. One thing I've, in this past year, of preparing with our launch team. It's been, been a lot of getting on the same page when you have a lot of Christians from a lot of different traditions and experiences. You could say prayer ministry, and that would mean 10 different types of things. One of the words I've really tried to um, just uh, cultivate, help people to understand, is not really a common word, uh, but it's the word cruciformity. And it's become a bit of a meme word now, which, again, it's still a good thing because that's etched into people's mind. The word Cruciform, as Google would define it, is cross-shaped. That's like the literal translation. Cruciformity is this theological word and has this depth of understanding, meaning to embody the gospel, to embody Jesus Christ's atonement. And the atonement that is Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is all of that. It's not simply that point of death and resurrection. It's also his life and how he modeled, and how he exemplified what it means to be a child of God. And that's our hope for us as a community. Like, I've been asked so many times, why plant a church? Why not just be a campus of something else or whatever? For us as a community, God has been so kind in bringing people's story and weaving our, what now is a collective story together for a specific set of cultural values. It's not that we're doing something new, but perhaps it's something specific. And for us, it's one thing if we're coming together, and it's great. The Sunday has a purpose, but the Sunday gathering is just part of what it means to follow and practice the way of Jesus. Doing life in community. Again, it's, it's hard when it's busy and we have so many commitments. Um, for us, community isn't just a good idea. It's a spiritual practice, and that's what we see throughout the scriptures. I mean, right now we are taking a break because we're trying to figure out how to do this church thing, so we, we aren't actually doing it right now, but we will. We will once we figure out how to do community groups with more people. But what would it look like if we as a church beholded Christ together? I'm not sure if that's the right grammar, beholded, but I'm going to use it anyway. What would it look like if we as a church community behold Christ together, and embody Christ as well in our everyday lives. Here's a thought. If we considered each other superior than ourselves, so if I thought Josiah was, I consider him superior than myself, that his needs are more important than my own, and Josiah thought my needs are more important than his own, if we did that all as a community, we would have a community where no one was looked down upon and everyone was looked up to. That's what it means to follow Jesus together. And that is the vision of a Christ-centered community.